Well, it is good to be uh, with you, not just because my family and I enjoyed uh, your wonderful beaches, as you can tell by my tomato-like face. Uh, I think I was the most fair-skinned person on the beach, at least at the beginning, not at the end. Um, I also loved your sunsets here in the Hamptons, but I must admit, uh, part of what made this trip really wonderful for my family was being able to see, but also to have my kids experience uh, Grace Camp. And I was blown away with uh, how diligent and hard so many volunteers worked to make this a special time for the kids and how uh, exciting it was even just to enter the room, sorry, each evening. And so uh, I want you to know I'll be going back to Toronto. You have some sisters and brothers in Toronto that would love for you to offer prayers whenever you see Canada, if we ever make the news or if we ever win a gold medal at anything. Um, <laughs> We'd love for you to remember that there's a church in Toronto that would love your prayers. Five years ago, I was here telling you that I was going to take this risk, uh, Lord willing, and asking for God's Spirit to bless to start a new church in the east end of Toronto, not quite as far east as we are here but yeah, of the city, but uh, the east end of the city. And by God's grace, the church has done really well. I'd love to tell you story after story of the way that COVID, uh, in my mind, was nothing but a setback and a failure in a country like Canada, and yet in God's Spirit's plan... Uh, people came to know Christ, people deepened their faith through difficult seasons, and our church really grew and flourished. And so I'm missing my church this morning, and I'd, I'd ask you to remember us in prayer. It's been a wonderful, wonderful trip, and I'm so thankful to witness in your church what God's Spirit is doing. Uh, it's really encouraging, and if you're just visiting this church, uh, there's something special going on here. We're going to look at a passage from 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm not sure that everyone in the room may be familiar with this story. Um, but I'd ask you to give God's word your full attention as we learn uh, about one of, one of my church always laughs when I say one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. I think I say that every week. But this one's up there. Uh, it's, it's up there in terms of one that I, I take great delight in studying. So here now God's word. This is 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. If you have a Bible, it would probably be helpful to open it up at this time. Uh, if not, I believe the words will appear behind me. Hear God's word. Give it your full attention. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? 
Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be cleaned? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was cleaned. This is the word of the Lord. It is given from our Lord because he loves us, and it is given for your and my good. So let me pray, and then we're going to ask our Lord to bless us as we reflect on this passage for the next couple of minutes. Let's pray. Our Father, I don't know everybody in this room and the baggage and the stories that they have brought into these pews, but my guess is there are people who are hurting, there are people who are anxious, there are people who feel far away from you, there are people who are bored. Father, my guess is there are people all over the map in this room, and so we are going to do what we do every Sunday your church, wherever we meet, we put ourselves in the hands of your spirit and ask that you would command and instruct your spirit to come upon us so that each one of us could hear your very word. And in hearing your word, we leave here a changed people with a deeper and robust, more robust understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ and its application to our lives and more courage to take on the callings you've given to each one of us. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, her name was Jennifer Thompson. The year was 1984. She was in her senior year of college. She was the homecoming queen. She had a 4.0 GPA, and she had the brightest of future ahead of her until it happened. He broke in. He assaulted her, overpowered her. And in an act that would have finished most of us, would have left us crippled as victims for the rest of our lives. Jennifer Thompson was different. And amidst the assault, she studied her assailant's face, listened closely to his voice. She was determined one day she would make sure that her assailant received justice. And it didn't last too much longer after the, only a couple of days later, the police officers called her and said, Mrs. Tom Ms. Thompson, I think we have found the assailant. We need you to come potentially identify him from a lineup. And sure enough, there in front of her, all these men walked into the room. And without missing a beat, with a measure of certainty, she said it was that one. She identified Ronald Cotton as her assailant. He had violated his recent parole, and the cops arrested him immediately. A couple months later, there was a trial. And Jennifer bravely, bravely took the stand, despite the fact that most of the evidence was circumstantial. She pointed to Ronald Cotton and said, this man was the assailant. 
and based primarily on her strong and certain testimony, Ronald Cotton was found guilty. And because he had recently violated his parole, he was sentenced to a near-life sentence. Two years later, Ronald Cotton had worked hard with his legal team and had earned an appeal. And at the appeal, the defense made a strong case that there was another suspect who was likely the assailant. There was another suspect who likely committed the crime. However, Jennifer bravely again, two years later, took the stand, looked Ronald Cotton in the eyes and said, it was this man. And based primarily on her testimony, he remained in prison. Eleven years have passed, 1995. Jennifer Thompson has triplets. She's happily married. That nightmare in 1984 seemed like distant and past history. And she gets a call on the phone. She hears that Ronald Cotton has been granted another trial. The district attorney says, I'm sorry to inconvenience you, but we need to do new blood work on you based on some DNA evidence that has surfaced. And Jennifer Thompson gladly agreed. She thought, this will be the time. We can finally put him away, and this will be over, this part of my life. But then the unthinkable happened. She received a knock on the door. The district attorney felt the need to tell her face to face. It wasn't Ronald Cotton. With a measure of certainty, she had identified the wrong man, and the DNA evidence was absolutely conclusive. And in a news article later, Jennifer Thompson is recorded as saying, how do you give someone back 11 years of their life? Jennifer Thompson now walked around the earth with two nightmares in her past. That horrid night in 1984. And the other nightmare of knowing that she put an innocent man in jail. Her burden was too great. Her guilt was unbelievable. She felt that she could barely function in life. And then based on the wisdom of a counselor and a pastor, a decision was made. I'll probably get choked up reading, thinking about it again. They'd meet. They'd meet in a church building of all places. They would come together. And in the church, Jennifer Thompson looked Ronald Cotton in the eye, the man that she had said it was this man. And she said, I'm sorry. She said this, if I could spend every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to what I feel. And as it is remembered, Ronald Cotton sat calm and quiet. Jennifer was not certain how he would act, but she, would assure, she was assured this was a good idea. And he finally spoke. And you know what he said? He said, listen, I'm not mad at you. I've never been mad at you. I've always wanted you to have a good life. I feel we both were victims here. Ronald Cotton and Jennifer Thompson spent two hours together in that church. And their friends and family were waiting outside in a parking lot not much different than this. And as they walked out these doors, they turned to each other. And Jennifer Thompson looked the man in the eyes that she falsely accused. And they embraced. And now the two of them work together with the Innocence Project, using, showing the ways in which DNA evidence can make for more certainty in these particular cases. Now i got to ask... How could Ronald Cotton forgive a man who wrongfully, uh, forgive a woman who wrongfully accused her and put her away for 11 years? It's an incredible story. How could he do it? Well, while he was in jail at his lowest point, I'll let you search on the internet later to hear more details about it. 
But someone shared the good news of Jesus Christ with him, something that he had grown up around, but it never made sense. And while he sat in jail, at a low point, he accepted Christ. He found grace. And all he could think to do was extend grace as a byproduct of it. Listen, this story you just heard read, this passage, I don't know if you understood all that was going on. Some of it is a bit strange. But it's a story all about grace. Someone receiving grace, someone extending grace. That's what the story is all about. And what I want to look at this morning quickly is how grace pursues us, what grace demands of us, and finally why grace comes to us. So your note taker, how grace pursues us, what grace demands of us, and why grace even comes to us. First, let's look at how grace pursues us. How do you know grace is coming after you, coming into your life? What does this story teach us? Who receives grace in this passage? Who was it? This man, Naman, Naaman, whoever you want to pronounce it. But how did grace pursue Naaman? Well, what do we know about this man? If you have your Bible and you look at verse 1, there's quite the description of him. Commander of the army of, of Assyria, the strongest power in the region by far. A man of great valor who had won numerous military campaigns, I would presume. He at least had participated in these raids, which would paralyze. The, God's people were divided into the northern and southern kingdom at this time. And the Syrian army would come in and make these raids to sort of weaken their economy, to make them live in this constant state of panic and fear. He clearly won some of those raids because he has a slave girl from one of those raids with him. Not only that, he's in high favor with the king. The king very quickly will write a reference for him, an international reference letter, sorry again, uh, for him as it relates to uh, seeking this healing. He comes with an entourage of horses and chariots and servants. And he brings with him piles of cash, 750 pounds of silver and 120 pounds, 25 pounds of gold. To be honest, inflation is so absurd, I didn't even waste my time trying to understand what it's worth. Uh, when I preached this at my church a couple months ago, inflation was at a different place. But it's all over the place. This is a ton of money. Millions of dollars. Okay? This is a, he comes with ten hand-sewn garments. This would be like coming with ten Rolls Royces. But maybe most incredible about this description of Naaman. I mean, you know, he could live in the Hamptons in one of these beach house properties is the way it sounds. But maybe more incredible than any of that we see in verse 1 is, is this unique phrase. That it was the Lord who gave him victory. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who made himself known in the burning bush to Moses, the God who revealed himself to his people at Mount Sinai. He had blessed Naaman. And God begins to bring grace in his life. Because how does grace pursue him? How do we know Naaman is a man who's about to experience grace? Because he is on top of the world, and yet how does verse 1 end? He has everything, and what does he have? He has nothing, because he's a leper. His days are numbered. One word overshadows all these beautiful descriptions of Naaman. In many, way, many ways, his strength is foiled by this one word. He was a leper. This isn't modern-day leprosy. This referred to a variety of skin diseases and rashes. Some were uh, not a huge deal, many of which would cause limbs to no longer function and stop working. Many brought tremendous amounts of pain. And it seems as though whatever he has, he knows it will be something terminal. Because we see in verse 7, the king of Israel says, do I have the power to make someone alive? How does grace pursue Naaman? What can we say? It pursues him the same way it's going to pursue you. Grace pursues him by crushing, crushing his illusion of self-sufficiency. That's how grace begins to enter into his life. He has everything, but with this skin disease, he has nothing. And that is always the case. You never experience grace 
until you know how low you really are. What I'm trying to argue is this. Grace has to humble us before it heals us. Grace has to crush us before it comforts us. Grace confuses us before it calms us. Grace shames us before it satisfies us. It hurts us before it helps us. It puts us down before it lifts us up. It confounds us before it cures us. It breaks us before it builds us back up again. This is how you can know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his grace is pursuing you because you feel like you have everything and you feel like you have nothing at the exact same time. And what is our Lord doing? He's exposing this myth of your self-sufficiency. Exposing it. He's making you realize you are fragile and fleeting. This is how you know grace is pursuing you. Friends, could it be that that one thing in your life right now, that one thing that is making your all but perfect life so frustrating right now, could it be that, that the Lord has left that one thing in your life so that you might taste and experience grace, maybe even today? Maybe he's using this one thing so that you wake up and realize there's something more important than life and wealth. There's something far more important than health. Maybe it's a problem with that child that just doesn't seem to get better. Finances that looked oh so glorious, but they're not looking good right now. That habit you can't seem to break, which enslaves your body. That fear that prohibits you from taking a risk you know you need to take. That inability to enjoy the simple things of life. Maybe that health scare, maybe not even a scare, maybe that diagnosis that you are doing your best to pretend isn't real. That relationship that can't be restored, that guilt that you can't seem to get rid of. Or maybe it's just that dull, aching feeling that there's got to be something more. That unhappiness that comes when, you're, when you have it all, and yet you just don't feel like you've got it. What if this wasn't a sign that God hates you? What if this wasn't a sign that God is ignoring you or cursing you? What if this is a sign that God's grace is pursuing you? It's right at some of your doorsteps. This is how grace pursues us. Not gently, not with the bow in its hair, not with pastel colors on, not with a pretty proposition. For people like many of us, it exposes us, it, it, it pursues us through pain to expose this false belief in self-sufficiency. I hope I've made my point. This is how grace pursues us. Now let's ask, what does grace demand of us? We see Naaman learning what grace demands in, in verse 5, but what does he assume at first grace demands? He assumes if he's going to be the recipient of this healing, if he's going to get any grace, what does he need to have? He's got to have piles of cash, 700 pounds of silver, 125 pounds of gold, 10 ceremonial clothing, you know, handcrafted clothing that a king might only have one or two outfits of. And he assumes not only does he have to have a lot of wealth, he's got to go through the channels of power. If he's going to get healed... He needs a reference letter from his king, and it's got to go to the king of Israel. And then with that reference letter, because he's got all this money, because he's got this entourage, and because the halls of power have granted permission, then he can receive grace. He assumes this is what grace demands. If you're going to get healed, you've got to have what our world says is required to get the attention of the healer. But listen, the king has no ability to heal Naaman. We learn that very quickly in the story. And when Elijah, the prophet, hears that the king has torn his clothes, he sends to the king and says, look, send him my way. But how does Elijah treat Naaman? I mean, I, f I find this part of the story fascinating. What does he do? 
He won't even meet Naaman. He says, look, just wait at the, wait at the doors of my house, okay? And he doesn't even meet to him, go to him face to face. He sends his servant to come relay a message. And he says, here's what grace demands. You want to be healed? Dip seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman's furious. What is this? This isn't that incredible. Where's my pen and teller moment? You know, I want the abracadabra, the wand over my body. I want to see in my presence the, the, the leprosy go away. Dip in the Jordan River. Do you not know the Jordan River is like a creek? There's numerous spots of the Jordan River where Naaman probably couldn't even immerse himself completely. It's just a backyard creek. That's why he references these two rivers and Damascus. The two rivers that are fed by the melting snow of the mountain, pure, flowing quickly, beautifully. If he wants me to dip in the water to be clean, I got plenty of rivers that will do much better. What does grace demand? Naaman's raging. Why doesn't he like this prescription? My hunch is he doesn't like it because it's just too simple, too physical. Too ordinary, not ma magical enough, too unique. To be honest, seven times in the Jordan River, anyone can do this. The poorest of servant could dip seven times in the Jordan River. The lowest of IQ would be just fine to dip seven times in the Georgian, Jordan River. This is what grace demands, something this simple, something this ordinary, something this not unique. Listen, I think... We know some of this to be true. At least Mark and I do. As pastors, we know one thing. If we told people that the way in which they could taste and experience salvation was that they had to get rid of that nasty, addictive habit in their life, and if they just got rid of that, they'd be cleaned up enough to go enter into the pearly gates. We know as pastors, we could work people to utter exhaustion. Utter exhaustion, but with delight in some senses, thinking that they're getting a little bit closer to earning their way into the heavenly realm before our Lord. If we said, listen, you want to get to heaven, here's what it's going to take. You know, you've got to hit a million dollars of donations over your life. And some of you guys are off to a late start. So here's the deal. I'm not saying you have to do it this way. There's always exceptions to the norm. But if we, if we started saying, you know, donate a million dollars, some of you would open up a separate bank account right after this and say, I can do that. That's acceptable. That, that, and that seems reasonable. A big sacrifice in my family, one I will happily do to be in the presence of my Lord. And you would work all of your life and anxious over your performance and the quickness with which you raise this money. But what, is, what does grace require? Not a million dollars. It doesn't. It doesn't even require you to get rid of that addictive habit that you hate and despise and you're so filled with shame about. What does it require? Simple faith, simple trust, low IQ to high IQ, rich to poor. That's all it requires, something so ordinary, so common, so frustrating for people who have their act together, who think they can do more, who think they can earn their way in. As the hymn writer says, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Naaman was called to go to the water, but it wasn't just any water. It was water mixed with the promise of God's word through his servant. And it shouldn't surprise us that entrance into any church, this church or my church in Toronto, no matter what church you want to become a member of, the entry ritual is always involves water. Not just water, but water mixed with words. 
And whether you are the president of the United States or whether you are the poorest of the land, it's the same entry ritual for all. The same initiation rite, a stumbling block to the powerful. It's a ceremony that reminds us that it's only by simple faith Jesus will wash us. Jesus will make us clean. If you're here and you haven't trusted in what Jesus says he can do for you, sins forgiven, new life unending, maybe today should be the day where you work out what that looks like to trust him. If you're here and you've never been baptized, too simple, kind of weird, ritual, maybe today's the day you reconsider what it means to have the water placed upon you with the promises of God's word. If you're here and you're baptized maybe as a little one, and for you, it's been a silly ritual all of your life. Maybe, maybe your mother has some picture of it hanging up somewhere, but you don't know anything about what it meant. Don't forget, that's not water. That's water tied with God's word of promise. You've been marked out in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By simple faith, will you trust? What does grace demand of us? I've been trying to make the point. It demands of us simple faith, simple trust in God's word. Something even a child is capable of. Let's end our time by asking, why does grace even come to us? Why does grace come to us in the first place? Naaman finally is convinced to dip himself in the water seven times and he's healed. Why does grace come to him at all? Who's the hero of the story? Is it Elisha? Hang in there, I won't go much longer. Although preachers always say that when they go, about ready to go a lot longer. (laughs) Who's the hero of the story? Is it Elisha? I don't think so. There's some unnamed little girl who probably saw her parents murdered, probably saw her father slaughtered right in front of her face. Who knows what she witnessed as she was stolen, taken from her home. She was old enough to make memories of the prophet Elisha's ministry, so she clearly has memories of what happened in that traumatic moment when she was taken from her home and enslaved in Naaman's house. Why does grace come to Naaman? Because one girl, one nameless little girl who was likely mistreated, who was certainly treated as second rate in the home. One girl did something. She paid the price so Naaman could taste grace. What could the slave girl have done? What could she have done to Naaman? She could have said this. She could have said, listen, finally, finally, you've had all the power in the relationship, Naaman, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Because now that you have this terminal illness, I happen to have in my pocket the very medicine in my brain. I know the recipe by which you could be healed. And what could she have done? She could have said, I am going to take great delight in watching you die of this miserable, painful death. I'm going to enjoy every second of it. You had power for so long, now I've got the power. But what does she do? As a pastor in London, England, Dick Lucas likes to say, she paid the price of usefulness in God's kingdom. She paid the price. She could have extracted revenge her entire life, but she doesn't. She shares the medicine. She shares the good news. God has worked in our world. He'd opened up a place in which his healing power is touching the earth through this man, the prophet Elisha. And rather than extracting revenge, she shares this good news so that Elisha may be healed. So why do we even remember this nameless little girl? Because she loved her enemies. Listen, if you want to be forgotten in this world, no matter how much money you have in your portfolio or how successful you've been in your life, if you want to be forgotten, spend your whole life in bitterness trying to extract revenge on your enemies. But if you want to be remembered, you've got to find deep down somewhere 
grace that you've received. And you've got to learn to extend grace and love even to your bitterest of enemies. This is how you get remembered in the kingdom. Listen, she paid the price of usefulness. And is this not, the story itself, is it not a very picture for us about how our gospel works? Someone has to pay the price of usefulness. Someone, has to, someone could, has to have the power to sit back and watch uh, revenge be paid. But they have to pay the price of usefulness. The strong have to make themselves weak so that the weak can become strong. This is the gospel we celebrate every week. This is how Ronald Cotton could forgive. Just like this girl. God himself. The one which we have spit in his face. We've taken all the gifts he's given us and assumed they rightfully belong to us. We've mistreated the world that he's given to us. We've mistreated the people in our life. We've assumed it's all about me. We assumed he owed us something, despite the fact that we're given breath in our lungs and we did nothing to earn it when we awake. And he has given to us this mortal diagnosis. All of you will die. I, one day, will experience death. But what does God do? He's a true and much greater slave girl. He pays the price of usefulness. Does he not send his son to be like this slave girl? To love his enemies. What does the Bible say? While we were still enemies with God, that's when Christ died for us. And this is the gospel. This is the good news we celebrate every week. This little girl gave us a little glimpse into what our Lord would do for us. True and deep healing are offered in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Listen, all it takes is that you acknowledge this myth of self-sufficiency that so many of you and so many times I still continue to believe. And in simple faith, you trust that you can be made God's child, God's daughter, God's son. In simple faith, all sins forgiven, healed, life unending, the antidote to death, the resurrection with our Lord Jesus. This is our hope. Let me pray before we go to the Lord's table. Our Father, we thank you for this unnamed little girl, a little girl that I hope we get to meet in heaven one day. We thank you for the way in which she shows us clearly how your gospel logic works. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, to trust what he has done for us, and by simple faith to believe all can be made well. Please, Father, continue to work by your spirit to put this word deeper and deeper into our heart. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.